0: Well, good morning, Door Creek. It is good to be together on this beautiful spring day. If you're a guest here today, my name's Mark, one of the pastors, and we're really glad to have you here. Hey, I want to remind you that we have a resale store. Did you know that, church? We have a resale store. It's called Boomerangs. It's in Northgate Mall, corner of Aberg and Sherman, and we want to be the best resale store in the city, giving great stuff at affordable prices in the friendliest store. And you can help make that happen by serving, by donating good stuff, and by coming to the Grand Reopening on Saturday from 9 till 4. There's some fun giveaways. If you bring some perishable, non-perishable food, you can get a discount on your purchases and pizza, free pizza. So this is like a great day. So think about joining us next Saturday at Boomerangs. And remember, don't forget that all the profits. And over the last eight years, there's just been lots, thousands of dollars of profits that have just been going back into the north side and other places in the city. And now as we get ready to launch that new campus on the north side, just kitty corner from the the Boomerang store, these profits of this store go to help make that happen in our ministry and ongoing ministry to kids and families on the north side. So thanks. So we're in the storyline series. So if you're a guest... We're just going through the whole Bible. And this Bible was written over 1,500 years. It's got 66 books. It's got 40 different authors, and we believe it all holds together in the person of Jesus. It's, it's a unified story, and it connects with our story, and we want to continue to see how our story can continue to connect to God. So we're in a series on the life of David, who is described as a man Who had a heart after God and so we're calling this part of the study a heart for God and we've noticed his humility we've noticed his patience and today we're gonna notice that this man who had a good heart also had a heart like ours it was deeply flawed and one of the great things that we're gonna see is a flawed heart that flows out of a good heart can find God's mercy and forgiveness but like the stuff we do that isn't loving God, the sin in our life that isn't loving our neighbor actually is costly. And we're going to catch up with all of it. The irony of the study today is we've just come off the study of his patience and how he's anointed as a young man, maybe 15 years of age. Samuel comes and anoints him as the king. King Saul has been rejected by God because Saul won't follow God's commands, his word. But it takes him 15 years before he is crown king and he has many opportunities to seize the crown which we could say was arguably his to have and he doesn't do it he continues to refuse the opportunity to take that which belonged to him and the irony of our story today is we see him taking that which doesn't belong to him that is bathsheba so we're going to catch up with that story 2 Samuel 11, if you've got a Bible, you want to go back to a table and grab one, do that. 2 Samuel 11, if you're new to the Bible, table of contents will get you. There, it's after 1 Samuel, before 1 Kings. Chapter 10 was all about David leading the Israelite army into a great battle against these uh, people who've attacked him, the Amorites and the uh, Ammonites. And so um, after that victory, we read this story. Chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, his general, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, But David remained in Jerusalem. Remember that line. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. A good heart. As good as it was, is a flawed heart. What we notice is this happened in the springtime. This was the typical time when kings mustered their armies and went to battle. And we notice that David's not engaged in battle like he was in chapter 10, like he's been doing all his life. He's taken a break. We, we note that. The other thing we note is that Bathsheba's bathing wasn't any kind of a seductive move on her part. He was following the law as prescribed in Leviticus 15 that talked about the ceremonial cleansing that a woman would go through when she's having her period. That's what's going on there. Her dad, Eliam, and her husband, Uriah, show up in chapter 23 as these mighty men in David's army. They were part of the elite army fighting for us, and there's like 30, 40 guys listed there, and they're in it. We also notice that Uriah Bathsheba's husband, this mighty soldier of David, is not an Israelite by birth, right? He's a Hittite. And then we fundamentally notice that David, like us, like the very first sin, is, has the natural default when it comes to sin that he covers it up. So, the natural default of the human condition is we cover it up instead of fessing up. That's what Adam and Eve did. That's what he's doing. And the way he's going about the cover up is okay. She's pregnant. We've got a problem here. But the problem goes away if we can get Uriah back from the battle, have him sleep with his wife, and then he's going to think, right, it's his child. So he does that. And he sends him home, and he gives gifts. And he finds out the next morning that Uriah didn't go home. So he calls for Uriah, and he begins plan B. He says, Uriah, why didn't you go home? He says, how could I go home? All the men that I lead, your general, they're all sleeping in tents. How could I go home and enjoy the comforts of home and my own wife? So here he is, this faithful soldier who has an opportunity to go home, to sleep in his own bed, in the arms of his own wife, and he's sleeping like, like a guard, right, at the te- at the gate of the, the door of the palace. Plan B. right. come back for dinner tonight before you go back to the battle. I'd love to just share dinner with you. And as he's sharing dinner, I don't know, he probably instructed, it's not in the text, but I'm imagining he instructs his servants, just keep filling the man's wine goblet. We need to get him good and drunk, and he was, and he doesn't go back. And we find out that the man who was good and drunk was a better man than the man after God's own heart who was sober. Let me say it again. Uriah was a better man drunk than the king who is described as a man having a a heart after God. Plan A didn't work. Plan B didn't work. Plan C is, I got to take him out. It's desperate. So just, just imagine now, you're on the roof, you're David. There is no way that he is misunderstanding the temptation. It was sexual. That was the category. There is no way he thought he was being tempted to commit murder. Right? We all agreed. He sees, she's beautiful. Who is she? Let her come. The rest of the story but here's where it goes plan c is he writes a note he seals the note that seals uriah's death it's a note to the general he says joab i want you to place uriah in the fiercest battle and then i want you to withdraw from him so he dies in battle that's the final cover-up And we read on in the chapter, and a servant comes back and tells us, and that's exactly what happened. They went and attacked the city wall in close proximity to the enemy, and he was struck down. He died, and other men with him. Look at verse 26. When Uriah's wife, I love that the text doesn't say Bathsheba. It reminds us again who she is, Uriah's wife. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But just so we're clear, it says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, it was evil in the sight of God. Good hearts are flawed. There's nobody else described in the Bible that's human. So we're not talking about Jesus. There's nobody else who is described with, he had a heart for God. There's like, this guy was stellar. And he blew it big time. Even good hearts are flawed. But flawed hearts can be forgiven. And forgiveness comes through confession, but he's in cover-up mode, not fess up mode. And he's Staying in that mode. Why, why is it that it's hard to confess sin? Well, because we understand the law of sin is that it destroys things and separates things. It does things. And so we're afraid that once it's out, the consequences are going to be too big and we don't want to go that way. David knew because it was required of the king, Deuteronomy 17, it was required of the king that as you become. King of Israel, your first job, and it took a long time, is in your own hand, write out all of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And he knew what the text said. In Leviticus 20, verse 10, it said, If anybody commits adultery, they are to be killed. He knew that. So fear of consequences. And then there's pride. Now, I'm, I'm saying fear and I'm saying pride. We're not going to find those in the text. I'm just trying to wrestle with why is it that our natural inclination isn't to fess up, it's to cover up, especially in sexual sin. Because we know the consequences. And we have a huge amount of pride where we go, one of the consequences is going to be, there's going to be a new narrative about my life and about my character and about my family, and I don't want to go through that. So we're not given the reason. All we know is he never responded to the tug of God's spirit on his heart. That's what the conscience is. It's a beautiful gift that God has given us that the Holy Spirit has unique access to, to people who place their faith in Christ and even people who haven't. The spirits, one of the spirits' role in this world is to convict us. But what happens when we're convicted and our conscience rings and we don't deal with it, over time, our conscience goes numb. So the Bible, we use this phrase, you can sear your conscience. So it doesn't mean to sear it, it means to burn it. So, you burn your hand on something. You burn your finger on something. You can lose the feeling, right? When those nerve endings are damaged by the fire, the heat, whatever. So, he's got a seared conscience. And it takes the grace of God to send the prophet of God to help David know who he is and what he's done. And even then, it takes a while. It takes a while but it's the grace of God that he sends Nathan to David. And when he comes, he brings a story. He doesn't bring a list of accusations. He doesn't bring a pointing finger. He says, David, I I want to tell you a story because his goal wasn't confrontation. His goal was to restore this man's heart back in right relationship with God. And it would be the story that would connect to his heart But even in hearing the story, he doesn't connect the story to his own heart, just to the emotions in his heart, not to the realities of his broken heart. So we read verse 1, chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. That's a story to get to his heart. Did it work? Kind of. Verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, I mean, he's pontificating. He's decreeing right now the king. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. He doesn't get it. Why doesn't he get it? Let me suggest to you, if Nathan had come the next day, after that night when he had sex with another man's wife he'd have gone oh I think i know what this is about why does he not get it because his heart is getting hard it's not sensitive to the spirit and the work of the spirit he needs something more verse seven Then Nathan said to David, you're the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you. Your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? David said in this period between his adulterous act and his coming clean, he said, this is what, what happened to me and what happens to me. He writes about it in Psalm 32. It may not be describing this situation, but what had happened at other times when he'd kept silent, when he covered it up instead of brought it out in the light. He says this, Psalm 32:3, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And all this was a grace. It is a grace. When unconfessed sin just wears us out physically, spiritually, emotionally, it's a grace. Because when we leave it covered up, and it's lying in our own hearts. It's a cancer, and it cuts us off from the life that God has intended for us. And the consequences, though, though forgiven, are staggering. They're staggering. Look at verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I sinned. He comes to his senses. Okay, I get it. I, I sinned. And not just against Uriah, not just against Bathsheba. I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. You've been forgiven, he's saying. But look at the first word of verse 14. But, catch up with that. So, this is true that there isn't anything that you've ever done that God can't forgive. That's true. The other thing that's true is just because we've experienced God's forgiveness doesn't bring out this magic eraser thing that goes, and so there won't be any consequences either. Now, that's not actually how it works. God says, God isn't mocked. A man, a woman will reap what they sow. And so there's consequences. There's a but, but you killed Uriah with the sword, the sword of the Ammonites, Verse 10, he says, the sword's not going to depart from your family. And just a few chapters later, we read about the furious rage of Absalom who kills his brother Amnon for raping Absalom's sister Tamar. I mean, this is just, David's got all these wives and these kids from different mothers and it's just a tangled mess. And that's what happened. The sword didn't depart. Then he says, going on, there's a second thing, verse 11. There will be great calamity on you from your own family. He says, what you did in secret will be done in broad daylight. Speaking of what Absalom would do. So here's the storyline. We'll look at Absalom and his coup and his rebellion against the king next week. But here's the, here's the cliff notes. So Absalom deals with Amnon because David didn't have moral authority because he really was broken in terms of his own sexual sin to address the sexual sin in his son Amnon who rapes one of his daughters, Amnon's sister, Tamar. And so Absalom takes matters in his own hands because David was ineffective as a dad right there. And so he kills his brother Amnon, Absalom does, and then he flees. And then he's invited back in. And then he leads like a civil war. It's this coup. And he chases David, is running out of Jerusalem, and, and, and Absalom now is in position to take over. And his advisors say, Absalom, if you want to demonstrate that you truly are king of Israel, then you need to pitch a tent and you go sleep with all of your father's concubines. Think harem, all these women. What you did in, broad de- what you did in, in you know, the cloak of darkness at night is going to be done in broad daylight. Great calamity, great shame. It happens, chapter 16. And the third thing he says is your son who's born to you will die. And that happens in the verses to follow. And from this time on in the storyline, you just flip through the t- pages and you get the, t- the, the, the chapter headings and you go, oh, man, this, this thing is going in the wrong direction. Amnon, rapes, Tamar. Absalom kills Amnon. Absalom leads a coup and almost kills his dad and all this brokenness. It's just its just like, oof. And we ask ourselves, so how, how, does, how does that happen? Well, one of the things we could say is David completely... Completely underestimated just the power and the destructive power of lust. And we we could go, yeah, he just he he wasn't clear about that on that night up on the terrace. And that is a true statement. He underestimated it. But let me tell you what happened that night started happening long before that night. Do you hear what I'm saying? So there was, there was some things in play. There was some erosion of character. It's like the root system of a tree was breaking down. We couldn't tell yet until the wind came and then it just blew over. And one of the indications of the text, there's three that I want to point out. The first is this. What we know about the story of David is this happens not when he's running for his life and he's desperately clinging to God. It's not happening at that time. It's happening when he's just basking in the success of his kingdom. He's the king. It's the United Kingdom. It's the peak of Israel's history. The borders have never been broader. The victory sweet. There's perfect peace. There's prosperity. He's brought the ark to Jerusalem. It's a worship center, religious center. He set up the capital there. It's like fantastic. If there were ratings, approval ratings in the day, 100%. Everybody loved this king. He was awesome. That, actually, that's when it happened. In times of success, we got to be careful and remember, actually, this is a time of liability this is a time when I could be careless this is a time when I could get deluded into thinking this is my identity this is what makes me happy this is my security I did this myself and the text says in Deuteronomy 6 when you remember he says Moses says to the people going into the into the land of promise he says, you're gonna get there it's gonna be awesome this land flowing with milk and honey in abundance. You're going to live in houses you didn't build. You're going to drink from the wells you didn't dig, right? You're going to eat from the vines that you didn't plant. Be careful in those days when you eat and are satisfied that you don't forget the Lord. And that's a good thing to remember. That when life's like really good right now, and David was maybe 40, maybe he was 50, and you're kind of coasted, and you're kind of reflecting, and you're kind of basking, go, man, this is, oh, 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 so great. Be careful. Be careful. There's a second thing the text says. We read it already. In verse 9 of chapter 12, he despised the word of the Lord. What happened? There there is an attitude of careless, there's a, a casual carelessness to the word of God that he was to read, the one that he wrote out with his own hand, And here's what Deuteronomy 17 said. It said this, the king is to write the law out. He's not to amass a bunch of horses. (laughs) It's like, why? It'd be like, don't have a lot of tanks because you're gonna think your strength is in your tanks and your force, and you're gonna trust in your horses and chariots instead of God. Second thing it says, don't amass a lot of gold and silver. Why? Well, because you you think you're gonna be secure because of your gold gold and silver you can just buy you know some people to help you for whatever you're facing don't do that and the third thing it says don't accumulate wives because that's what kings did and he was careless about it because as you're reading the account of david running for his life we find out that he's picking up wives like some of us collect different collectibles here's a wife here's a wife here's another wife here's another wife he was casual and careless and inattentive to the Word of God. It had happened long before that night on the terrace. So so I'm, I'm saying this first to me. This is our life. This isn't any other book. This is, this is a word to give us life and to keep us on the right path. This is wisdom. This is who I am and what I need. I need this word. And we can't be casual about it. Casualness for you could be, you know, I never catch up with it until the weekend, and thanks for helping me explain a little bit more. We we need this. Casualness for me is I'm in it, and I'm preaching it, but I'm not living it. It starts to, we, we, gotta, we gotta catch up with that. This is not any other book. This is our life. And he just thought it was another book. And there's a third thing. It has to do with the opening lines. In the spring, when kings go off to war, David did He disengaged from the mission of God. It doesn't say it, but I'm thinking he's going, man, I have fought enough battles in my life. I've slept enough outside in tents. I am staying in the comfort of my own palace. I deserve it after all that I've been through. It's somebody else's time to fight God's fight. I'm like retiring, moving to Florida. I don't think any of you over there are moving to Florida, but sorry for that gaze. I didn't mean to freak you out. (laughs) disengaging thinking you know what i i don't need to be engaged yes we do people of faith are engaged in the work of god and the fight of faith to the day we breathe our last we just fight in different ways and he checked out and he was bored and he wandered on that terrace and he let his eyes wandered and he brought great destruction on his life and family And those are the three things in the text. In times of success, he wasn't careful. He wasn't careful with the word of God. And he wasn't engaged in the work of God. But he was forgiven. Look at it again. Chapter 12, verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. He comes clean. The Lord has taken away your sin. Nathan said you're going you are not going to die. And turn over to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is actually what David wrote on that time at that time in his life. It says in the title of the psalm, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him, Psalm 51 after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. This is what he wrote. This is the expression. This is how you with your good heart and good attentions, but a flawed heart can find forgiveness. Because I'm telling you, you cannot bear up the guilt of your sin. You were not built for that. You cannot keep covering it up and come under the weight of it. And so he confesses it. What does he say in verse 1? Have mercy on me. He cries out to God for mercy. Verse 2, wash away all my iniquity. Verse 4, he acknowledges that he sinned against God and God only, and he calls his sin what it is. He didn't call it an affair. He didn't call it a tryst. He didn't call it a dalliance. He called it evil. Evil in your sight. And then he reminds himself before God who he is. He's been a sinner since birth. So verse 7, he says, Clean me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy. He's lost the joy and we lose the joy when we cover up sin. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit. So I want to end with some very practical things for those of us who are married and those of us who one day might be. How to to affair-proof your marriage, How to avoid sexual sin. So married or not, these things apply. You ready? Take notes here. Number one, be faithful to God. Faithfulness in our relationships grow out of our faithfulness to God. If we're faithful to God, we're in the Word. God's Word is in us. By His grace, we're trying to live it out. Stay in the Word. Be faithful. The second thing is be humble. The worst thing we could ever think, the worst posture we could have today leaving church has been that guy was jacked up. I would never do that, and I could never do that. Be humble and understand that all of us have the potential to do this. If David, the man after God's own heart, had a flawed heart and committed adultery, and then much more, we can do it. I've met too many good men who fall in this area to ever say, no, it couldn't happen to me. Oh, yes, it could. And it's but by the grace of God we have. It. And then we got to catch up with Jesus when Jesus said, well, by the way, As you're getting all high and mighty, religious leaders, don't forget, if you've looked at a woman with lust in your heart, actually you've broken the command. You've committed adultery. Stay in the Word. Stay humbled. Rejoice in what God has given you, your wife, your husband, singleness. That's a gift. All that's a gift. In your marriage, ask God, what does my spouse need? Ask God to fill the areas in your life that you need more of? There's a big difference in doing marriage for fullness as opposed to from fullness. When it's for fullness, you're always needing your spouse to give to you to complete you. And there's many ways in which our spouses are meant to do that. But fundamentally, at the core of who we are, we need to be strong in who we are and overflowing in who we are through Christ. And when I'm going For fullness, I'm asking you to do something you can't do as as a person. Your spouse can't be Jesus. Only Jesus can fill you. And when we have fullness from Christ, actually it's out of the overflow of that that we're positioned to give our lives away and find our life. That's the wild paradox. We actually find life when we die to ourselves and give our lives away. Take the brokenness of our lives, of our relationships to Christ for healing, for straightening. Remember the consequences. Remember what Jesus taught us to pray. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Treat sexual temptation like a house on fire. Get out with every temptation the scripture says in Corinthians there's an exit sign there's a way out run see the blanking light get out of the burning house two last things don't share the deep things of your heart if you're married with a person of the opposite sex don't do that keep a high fence around the emotions of your heart the affections of your heart and finally love Jesus more than sex Jesus never had sex. Jesus lived the fullest human life that anyone has ever lived. Jesus says we're not going to be married in heaven. Sorry to bring you bad news if you didn't know this, but there's no sex in heaven. There's actually something better. Something better. And so, love Jesus more than sex. And understand, sex is a gift of God. It's beautiful. It blesses our lives, but God placed it in a certain place. And it's not, it, it's it, what's, what Chesterton says, it's the difference between the gate of a house and the house itself. Don't be confused. So, here's a great quote Sex is an instinct that produces an institution. And it's po- positive, not negative, noble, not base, creative, not destructive, because it produces this institution. That institution is the family, a small state or commonwealth, which has hundreds of aspects, when it once started, that are not sexual at all. Those aspects, right, include worship, justice, festivity, decoration, instruction, comradeship, repose. Sex is the gate of that house, and romantic and imaginative people naturally like looking through a gateway. But the house is very much larger than the gate. There are indeed certain number of people who like to hang about the gate and never get any further. And one of those people was the woman at the well who met Jesus. And he said, I know you got five husbands and I know you're looking for something through those relationships, but I'm here to give you something bigger. I'm here to give you everlasting water that means you'll never thirst again. And so may we be satisfied in Christ, in full in Christ. And I want you to consider this. I want you to connect the story of Uriah with Jesus coming to this earth. So Uriah was sent back to the battlefield. Right? He left what he could have had, the comfort of his home, and Jesus did that. He left heaven and he entered a battlefield. And in a sense, he carried a letter. There's there a sealed document that he was part of writing so he actually knew what was in the letter and the letter was God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son he came to die and he went into the fiercest battle right there on the cross and when everybody withdrew from him he stayed there and he died for all of us who are unfaithful to bear the weight of what you and I can't bear And so in this heavy subject, let's keep bringing the heaviness of our own brokenness to the cross and remember what Jesus did and he said that he's paid it all. It's enough. Whatever you've done, whatever you're thinking, ah, it's enough. It's enough. Let's pray. Lord, help us to believe that. Help us to believe that good hearts are flawed, our hearts. Holy Spirit, take your word to show us the things that we've covered up that need to come out. Thank you that you are a God who keeps no record of sin. Thank you that you sent your son to take on the weight of what we can't bear. So, Lord, wash us clean. Restore our joy and give.